Welcome to the APTO Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today is three-time Paralympic medalist, a Canadian and world record holder in several track and field events, a Windsor Essex Hall of Famer, and founder of Disability Today Publishing Group that publishes Thrive Magazine. Jeff is also a double arm amputee from when he was a kid, but he has become and continues to be a role model for persons with disabilities as the executive director at Parasport Ontario, an organization that assists para-athletes achieve their goals in their sport. So welcome to the show, Mr. Jeff Thiessen, and certainly great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks, Aristotle. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. It's a, it's a great program podcast you've got going, and it's an honor to, uh, to spend some time with you today. Awesome. Well, thank, again, thank you for being here. So can you take us back to when you lost your arm as a kid? Um, you were born in Leamington, Ontario, and you were very active as a kid. And so can you tell us sort of what happened and can you share that with us? Yeah, some say my, some say I might have been too active. <laughs> that was uh, my, my demise. I um, really sport-oriented, outdoor, uh, outdoorsy uh, type kid. So bikes and go-karts and fishing and swimming and I uh, played competitive uh, uh, baseball I was, I was pretty good at that sport hockey soccer you, you name it so uh, it was some of a certain vintage will remember uh, the storms of 77 and 78 that swept through on Ontario uh, and it was the first one in, in 77 that uh, was kind of the I guess the product or, or I don't want to say the cause I was the cause of my accident but um, we had been out of school for a few days and uh, you know getting a little bit bored I, I grew up on the shores of Lake Erie so there's this big embankment in a compound station electrical compound station that pumped water from the lake in our area to all the small towns in, um, in the in the region um, in the county so uh, yeah we started we found these great nine foot drifts off the top of these fences that of course were meant to keep people out of <laughs> the transformer station. Uh, and yeah, we, we were tobogganing for a couple of days off of those. And then we had pretty easy access to get inside and it made for some great fort snow fort tunneling and building. And ultimately one uh, sunny afternoon, I was, I was the one of the bunch of us that touched what, ultimately someone was going to, and uh, it was a 27,000 volt transformer, like a, a copper pipe coming out of, out of a box, out of the snow, bringing power into, into the station. So yeah, life changed pretty dramatically for me at, at, at age 11, but um, a lot of good has, has come of it uh, as well. Right now. So first of all, I was like nine foot fence, snow drift, or sorry, like a toboggan way. That's quite a high, um, it was it steep. Was it, yeah, it was good fun. Uh, it was really steep. And then because uh, they were drifts, they'd sort of drop off and then we could toboggan right out onto the lake that, that was frozen. So, yeah, danger all around. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, I was just like taking it back by that. I'm going, that's that's quite a that's quite a drop at nine feet um, on a toboggan. But um, but now I'm yeah. And um, so when. So was the was the wire exposed, or it just happened that you were in the? I guess I'm trying to get to is, you know, as little kids, I know when they say don't put a fork in a socket, you just want to do that. So is it like, oh, is it exposed wire? I'll go touch it. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question, and, and I've I've got it in a number of, of different ways over the years. So to kind of start at the back end of the answer, yeah, we knew it was dangerous. Um, okay. As 11 and 12 year olds, we didn't think so much of the consequence, like what, what could happen? Were we right. telling our parents that we were playing inside of that pump station? No, <laughs> of course not. So, and it wasn't so much a, a wire, it was a, like a quarter inch, maybe even a half inch copper pipe that was, um, it came up out of the snow, out of a, a metal box below and connected with the wires above that was bringing the power in. So we were hopping around on these, tall drifts inside that station and um, I, I just I, I remember stepping over kind of a, a chasm or a, a crevice you know how snow will drift and leave drops and kind of popped over that and probably just grabbed onto this to, to steady myself and um, so with one hand electricity went in one hand probably being a sweaty kid is what saved my life. We were, it was a warm winter's day. We were playing hard, sweating under the arm. 
bits. So the electricity arced on that went outside of my body instead of through my chest, which of course would have killed me. And, mm -hmm. and then arced on that other moist right, <laughs> arm bit and grounded out my, my other hand to that metal box that was buried probably three or four feet underneath the snow. So, um, yeah, I won't make all the, 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 the cliche shocking jokes, but it did knock the power out for miles down, down the lake. The, the flash was unbelievable. It's uh, um, fortunate that, you know, my vision or any other part of my body wasn't affected, but my hands were mm -hmm. burned pretty badly from the touch and the grounding. Right. Just looking at the timelines, when you said this was in the 70s, correct? Yeah. Um, so cell phones weren't around then. So what... Did somebody, some kid, I'm just, I mean, I grew up in the 80s, so it's like, it's running to someone, yeah. the nearest adult, and say, can you call someone? So I, I guess how, you know, did the other kid kind of run over and get, grab someone for you or? Yeah, I, I was with my younger brother and sister, and um, they they were, you know, really went into a, a kind of shock of, of, of their own seeing that. Mm -hmm. they, they still make jokes today that you know, with the heat and, and the snow that I was kind of smoking or sort of steaming really is what it was. And I mean, that's an impression that has never left them either. I mean, this impacted our, our whole family and that's, I mean, another line of, of conversation, but I mean, they witnessed it. A friend of, of mine who I was with of the same age, he immediately ran up the embankment to my parents' house to, to get my dad. And uh, he came down, essentially dragged me out of that area onto a toboggan dragged me up the hill. Uh, my mom was waiting in the old uh, woody paneled uh, station wagon <laughs> with the door open and I went and off to first the, the local uh, hospital in, in Leamington where they really couldn't do much with me and I was quickly quickly moved to, to Windsor um, to you know a, a center that had a burden unit for me. Right so you talked about you know your brothers and sisters and all the kids around you. Can you share with us just for comparison I guess what it was like growing up in those days for a person with a child or a person or child with disability. Uh, you shared this story, I, I believe in a talk that made my jaw dropped, um, specifically uh, with a term that was used back in the time, how to describe a child with a disability. Yeah, well, I, I went to, to get my arms to the Ontario Cripple Children's Center, if that's what you're referring to. <laughs> Um, crippled, handicapped. Uh, yeah, it wasn't person before uh, description back in, in those days. But more than that, it um, we really had to rely on, on our own sort of intuition, my parents, that is, creativity. Um, uh, yeah, and fortitude, because there was no manual. There was no internet. There was no cell phone, but like you said, um, they were really on their own. And there weren't any other kids that were amputees in, in our community either. So it was kind of a trial by fire. And, um, you know, they did, a, they did the best they could. And, it, and I, in many ways, it was a really kind of fantastic job. And it didn't stop at, at, at anything. I was experiencing phantom limb pain. Um, quite significantly for the first three or four years after my injury. And uh, I mean, back then we kind of understood it was related to getting both arms amputated, but what was it? Not like we, we understand today. So, you know, we, we tried all different kind of remedies of the day, but I remember probably what worked most or I had had it with treatment is when they didn't tell me much about where we were going, but we were going to uh, a doctor's. Well, he happened to be a doctor of animal medicine, a veterinarian. And into his barn we went at night. And, you know, it's, he's got the overhead light hanging, kind of like you'd see it in the CSI program or something. Dusty horses. And, and uh, he specialized in acupuncture uh, for animals, for horses. So he was going to apply some uh, some acupuncture to me so i'm looking at these huge needles and thinking you've got to be kidding me. this is you know I'm, I'm afraid to start with and not much was said because he really wasn't supposed to be treating people you know his patients are, are horses is what he's licensed to do so it was all very kind of hush hush but ultimately he uh used magnetic therapy um on my ears and Aristotle, I don't know if it worked or not, but the embarrassment of walking around school with, uh, you know, magnets taped to my ear. I, I probably just at that point said, I don't have phantom limb pain anymore. No, it's, it's, it's gone. Wow. I thought the treatment you were just about the magnet treatment was just while you're there. I didn't realize that he left with 
them on you and walk around publicly with them on you because then that's like walking around with the brace helmet mouth thing that we did back in the 80s where you're like i don't want to walk around in this brace helmet for my teeth like what for right so you're saying that that's how that yeah because the the magnets were were to be left on to reflow energy or electrical currents in the earlobe and um and, and around the ears so yeah, I didn't last that long. But I mean, the moral of the story is my parents would, would try anything to, to, to try and, you know, and help and, and help with my, my, my rehab and my pain and, and emotional state, and physicality and learning how to use the arms. So I, I use that, that story as an example of creativity for sure. Right. No. And speaking of creativity, you then became a three-time medalist in the Paralympic Games. So again, in comparison, I wanted to know about what kind of adaptions or were the terms adaptions even used when you were training for your sport to compare to now when we talk to athletes and and you being the executive director at Parasport, it's like, oh, you know, we have blades now and we have this now and we have all, you know, all these sports wheelchair. Um, Back when you were training, uh, and playing sports as a child and growing up, were those adaptions already sort of in people's mind, or were you just do were you just adapting as, or making equipment for yourself to to play your sport? Yeah, pretty much the, the latter. Um, and my dad, uh, he worked at Chrysler's, so was you know had friends that were machinists and. You know, it was kind of country community, so you know everybody kind of knew how to fix something, <laughs> you know, be it on a tractor or a barn or an implement. So we had that resource at our disposal. I mean, jumping ahead eight, eight to twelve years, when I was finishing up my Paralympic career, we did uh, fabricate a pair of running arms for me. So when you talked about the blades, um, these didn't look much different than um, my everyday prosthesis, but they were made much lighter, um, uh, almost like a track, you know, a sprinter's track shoe. So they're pretty uncomfortable. You wouldn't wear them all the time, but it really did help in uh, uh, that that training. But it it all started and it's kind of a signature story that that I share with a a funny looking hockey stick that my dad created for me. Um, I was playing peewee hockey at the time of my injury and he thought that I should go back and you know son you know country boy mentality my dad's son you still skate you can still play hockey like dad you know the stick and the tying of the skates and and all all of that but not he he didn't he wouldn't hear it um we're gonna we're gonna get a stick rigged up for you so he did um one simple adaptation was just drilling a hole in the shaft for one of my my hooks to go through. But the other was more complicated. It was a ball and socket system that he worked with a local machinist in town um, so that I had sort of wrist flexibility at the, at the top of the stick. And um, yeah, he spent a lot of time on that and, and also spent time, which I didn't know at the time, he went to the arena and made sure that the coaches were going to be cool with this and, and other players and, and the, you know, the committees and whoever it may be, because we didn't want to walk in one morning with the stick and ready to go and get the, uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. So that was really good foresight um, at, at that time on his behalf too. So yeah, he, uh, he finished that stick about mid season. And I remember him coming to get me out of bed one Saturday morning. And I, I think it was more out from under the bed. Cause I was afraid I, and I didn't really want to do it. Um, but I, I am so glad that that is something that really he forced me heavily encouraged me to do <laughs> Um, I played one season. Uh, I, I was able then to convince him that soccer, much more natural sport, dad, for a kid with no hands, come on, you know, and, and he was satisfied with that. We, we went back and we did it. And, and I believe to this day that, you know, again, I don't want to sound cliche, but what I learned from that hockey stick about believing in myself, that if I could go back and do that, well, what else could I do? You know, other <clears throat> many other opportunities or doors that, that could be opened. And that really was the beginning of the Paralympic, uh, Paralympic career, you might say. But at the same time, interestingly, now I'm back playing with able-bodied peers and I'm being encouraged to go play with, compete with athletes with disabilities. And like we started this, this chat, you know, the, the language we used was much different back then, the perceptions, the attitudes, not, not like today. And I just saw that as a, a real step back. I, 
now I'm back with my, my peers and playing in the regular hockey league, playing the regular soccer league. What do you mean go run with amputees or other people with disabilities? Uh, but again, heavily encouraged by my parents, give it a try. And when I got out there and saw the, the talent, um, you know, the skills of, of these athletes, really kind of the attitude and the camaraderie, um, it, it built a whole new world for me. And it, it didn't have to replace the other. I, I was fortunate enough that I could live in both, in both worlds. And, and really that was an envy of a lot of my, my friends as, as, as kids that um, I had that, those friendships and that life there. And, and, and we tried to overlap as best as we could. But again, a, a door really opened uh, for me in that way. So you played, you said one season in, in hockey. So you were in, a, in your teens then, or sorry. So I would have been 12 then. Okay. You'd have been 12. Yeah. Okay. And then did you pick up athletics immediately after that? Or cause you're a kid with many sports. So yeah. <laughs> how did, how did, uh, I guess you played baseball as well and you played hockey and then how was the switch to track and field happen? I um, went from, hockey to soccer and then right. um did really well there so i was on a, a rep for a travel team that traveled around uh again the county at windsor essex county area right. and, and in doing that someone connected with the windsor bulldogs disabled sport club um heard about me saw me saw how fast i could run on the soccer field and then that's right. when sort of the the courting or the invitation came to hey come come and try this and, and then I was about 14 or 15 when, when I began into Parasport. Parasport. And then you talked about uh, running arms in comparison to running blades. So this is the first time I'm hearing that you were using a running arm. I thought, because in your pictures, you were you had an arm. Think, when you said that, thinking about running, I guess I would need my arms to actually balance myself while running. Can you tell us more about that, I guess? Yeah, I, I mean, running, it, it is very much legs, but it, it's, it's a... And as you know, Aristotle, as, as a runner, um, uh, you have your whole body mechanics working together. So if someone could imagine sort of holding your arms straight down at your side and running, your torso is, is twisting, um, your balance is off, and you're not getting that drive. And if you look at, at sprinters, the, the upper body mass on them, that's, that's important to get that polar push from, from your upper body and your arms. So I didn't want to run without them. Uh, my amputations are a couple of inches above the elbow on each side. So there's not even that elbow there to sort of, you know, flex and, and, pu and push with. So um, I would run with my arms, uh, my prosthesis, but we found that there was just a bit of like a, a, a slop in the socket. I was getting blisters. I just didn't have that really tight intimacy with them. And they were a little bit heavy. So the idea of the running arms function pretty much like my other ones, but extremely tight, like that track shoe I was talking about, and, and, and light. And it was interesting when I, I transferred from Western University to, to Windsor in, um, just before the, the games in, in 88 in, in Seoul, Korea. Um, we knew we had, I had a pretty good chance at winning. What really wasn't getting the support from the Western track team, um, uh, so there were great coaches. There was a great program at the University of Windsor. Their, their track and field program is one of the top. And they were so welcoming and inviting for me. They said, you know, if you can compete with these guys, yeah, you can make the team. But if you can't because of the disability, you're going to train with us. And first thing they did, um, Dennis Farrell, I will never forget. Um, he, he was, I think, the, the head of the athletics department and, and the track team. He brought in, his, in some of his kinesiology students and says, okay, do an assessment on Jeff to see what kind of efficiency loss that he's running at with the arms that he has. And they determined that to be around 22 to 25% efficiency loss, even with the arms that, that I had, because I really couldn't build upper body strength with no elbows to you know work biceps and, and pecs. So what they would do then is, um, it was more important to kind of finish together at the finish line than start together. So they, they used that to stagger a start for me. I was running 200s and 400s so that it was competitive in, in training, uh, competitive with the other athletes on the team that we were kind of finishing and pushing each other uh, coming down the stretch into the finish line. And, uh, it was one of the first programs to really kind of adopt um, someone with a disability 
and and really try and make it work. So it was a great experience for me. And then the football, and then working out in the in the uh, in the gym, I guess, on the weight weight equipment. The football team found me and said, "Hey, why don't you come out and let's get some of these uh, these guys running a little bit faster?" So they used me as a a rabbit and um, just to pull these other guys along a little bit in in practice and in training. So I was completely immersed in the university uh, athletic scene and uh, ultimately one of the um, I guess most memorable awards. One of them means a, a, a lot to me is an award that they gave me. They called it the A award. I don't know if it's kind of the participation or like achievement, A for achievement, um, at, at their annual banquet. Uh, just to really, um, they really solidified the, the the kinship I had with with those people at that time in my life. You were only eleven. What motivated you, or was that a uh, even a term used to to get somebody into sports. I know there's a lot of motivation talk about, you know, getting somebody into sports these days. What was the drive for you? Or in hindsight, what was the drive? Was it just getting activities and then just getting into sports? Or you've always been a sports kid, I think you talked about that. But a lot of times now when you become an APT, it's like, what's the motivation to, to get into sport and to get into Paris sport? There were probably a, a few, Aristotle, and, and, and i got to be honest, the one was some um, selfishness. Uh, it, it really gave me an opportunity to excel at something after my injury, um, where so much of life had, had become a, a, a struggle. Um, you know, I had to learn how to get dressed by myself again, how to use a comb, how to ride a bike, how to open a door on the car. And, um, the sports has just came natural to me and, and it just it really gave me a, a stage or a platform um to excel and 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 to compete against against others on, on a level playing field you might say so so there was that um certainly the confidence that uh i needed to rebuild in myself after my injury uh it it, it complemented that well I and mean, then not even at the high performance level that that didn't necessarily need that, but just the, the, the feeling of well-being and, and good health. And, and, I, and I knew too that it was important to keep myself in shape. As, as amputees know, we spend a little more energy every day walking on prosthetic limbs, uh, you know, but managing daily life skills with, uh, with prosthetic arms. So um, I kind of got that early on, that the, the better fit that I would be, especially into later life. Um, that would, would benefit me. So those were a few of them. And I was kind of sick of people telling me, uh, hey, you've got so much potential. Why don't you do with it? Do something with it. Hey, you got all this potential. Okay, okay. All right, let's see what I can do with it. No, I and it's just a conversation that that sometimes um, I, I catch wind of about, oh, because you're an IPT now, you become a runner or things like that, right? So, but I'm glad to hear that it's more, again, knowing you as a sports kid, it's like, I think once it's in you, it just kind of stays with you. And then when you discover a new love for something, regardless of your ability at this point, you're like, you know, I'm going to go and do that. To your point about, I just want to do something that I I'm, I can excel at and I'm good at, or, you know, and let, let me continue with that. Yeah, it, it, and you're right. It, and I mean, there were a lot of new challenges after after my injury and into my teens too. And a lot of those became social, and, um, you know, relationships. It was still a challenge. So, you know, learning how to do up a shirt uh, again for the first time, that's kind of a hollow victory for a, for a kid, you know, but uh, running a little bit faster in that 200 or, or 400, uh, that was stuff that I could really um, feel good about. And uh, I mean, I, I did understand that all those small victories, as I, I, I talk about learning how to do new things, um, it, you know, there were small, small victories, small battles, but at the end I was kind of winning winning the overall battle when they you put them all together cumulatively right no absolutely i i always say about you know the little goals added to the big goals eventually right so it's so i always talk about celebrating the little wins you talked about relationships and winning you know just buttoning up your shirt you also talk about in your talks about being a dad and how become you know how a double arm amputee dad you know, talk about talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different things there. I've um, been asked, uh, to, like you, to mentor uh, people um, that have had a injuries, particularly later in life. And that coffee mug story. It was a, a gentleman from Philadelphia who 
uh, found me and, and asked if I could help. He had lost both arms, very similar to me, in an electrical accident as well. He was having trouble in his relationship with his, his wife, uh, just feeling a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame. And uh, I said, okay, where, where do you want to start? He said, I just want to have a cup of coffee with my wife in the morning. I said, well, that shouldn't be too hard of a place to start. Like, where's the challenge here? You know, and I, I, I forget, I've been in an amputee for over 40 years. So everything has become second nature to me. And I said, well, you know, she pours a coffee for both of us and I, I reach for the mug and, and I grab the handle and, and automatically the handle just spins out of uh, out of my hook and spills and it, it's embarrassing and, and you know okay now I'm I'm getting it um, so I said to him, why why are you grabbing the handle uh, but one you don't have a thumb and you kind of need a thumb for that sort of thing he says well that's how you hold a cup of coffee by the handle I said that's how people with feeling in their hands hold a cup of coffee that's why there's a handle on it it burns their hands we don't have that problem anymore just grab around the barrel of the mug like you would a beer bottle or a glass and and do it that way but you know for him he just wanted to do everything the same as 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 he used used to and i i, I see that so often and uh, yeah we need to adapt a, a, a little bit so back to your question about the kids um I think they, I don't even want to say they consciously adapted to me, but they adapted more than, than, than I had to adapt to them. It was very fearful for me when, especially when they were young, uh, safety, of course, you know, crossing the road and I can't, I mean, I can hang on to their hand, you know, opening my hook and squeezing on their hand, but that's not going to be very comfortable for them. So I, I was always afraid that they were going to bolt and, Interesting with kids, they, they do want to feel safe too. So my kids are always grabbing my hand and holding on for, you know, for their dear life. Um, I, it, it was a, a weird shift for me that I thought I'm going to have to be grabbing them, lifting them. And no, they understood. Um, my son, even very young, very scientific, analytical mind, he would hand me things with thought. So uh, just the way my hand opens and, and closes there's better ways better angles you might say for me to grab onto something and he would have those all thought out my daughter on the other hand was she was just no patience um no time <laughs> as a three-year-old uh and if i wasn't able to grab it in you know her her designated time she would just drop it on the ground for me to pick up from there knowing that i could you know but no no, no tolerance for for waiting me out on that kind of thing but you know it I gotta say it, it didn't impact um, how I, I raised them. Um, I really do believe it enhanced their their lives in, in some ways. They did travel with me to um, after the games to some of the places we, we, we went back to and covered games as, as a journalist, Paralympic games that is. So they got to see unique parts of the world that way. They got a unique perspective too. And um, it, you know, it comes out, my daughter's, Queens right now, and she's doing a uh, uh, in the commerce program. It's pretty competitive, and they're, they're working hard to get internships. And a lot of it now is video interviews. And she often talks about how she was raised under a uh, you know a different a different normal, different perspectives um, as a kid. And and she really thinks she can bring that unique um, outlook on life and sensitivity and. Um, diversity awareness to to the jobs that that she wants to do in the future so um yeah if i had the choice to raise them with hands or without i'd take the with but um we, we certainly made some uh, some unique opportunities for them through through my disability going back into the paralympic games and you brought up how um taking the kids how do you see the difference between you going choosing the path to be an elite athlete or high-performance athlete back then to what performance athletes, para-athletes go through now in their path. Do you find that it was harder for you back in back then to get to where you are as a high-performance athlete to athletes now who will just say, oh, I want to do this and I'll find me a coach and I'll go on about, you know, getting qualified to or getting classified and, and, and making it to the Olympics? Yeah, it might be hard for me to, to, to say. I mean, my experience uh, was very good in that Windsor had its own disabled sport club and they consistently had, had coaches. Now, often the coaches were 
you know, interns from the kinesiology or phys ed program at, at the university, but, but still there were people there to encourage and, and suggest and, and, and coach. Um, I got really lucky and found somebody that was at higher level than, than that back then, but there weren't that many uh, of them. So we were much more on our own in, in those days, really had to source or resource um, uh, training modules, coaches, funding. So I, I think the high-performance athletes today, um, those systems are, are, are better in place for them. I will say though, it's become more competitive now. Back in my time, um, there were international competitions where the lanes weren't always full. And I, I had, I, being a double arm amputee, I would only compete against other double arm amputees. And a lot of them actually would solidified the victims or survivors, whatever the, the better word is. Um, and uh, yeah, so getting to that level, um, I won't say it was an easier path, but there was less competition uh, to get there. Not to say that the competition wasn't very elite when you got there, but so that that's that's a big difference too. I think the um, sort of the inclusionary or integrative approach now uh, in the sports system uh, it is very beneficial. For example, I was part of the Ontario Amputee Sports Association in my day. Today, I would be part of Athletics Ontario and I would be competing and being supported alongside and with uh, Ontario's able-bodied high-performance athletes. So that, that's a good thing uh, as well. Do you think that the pair athletes are getting the same uh, sort of focus and the same training, the same, um, or is it more beneficial for the pair athlete than to be grouped with the able bodies so that they compete at almost the same level regardless of their abilities? at that point being it combined now yeah i mean the system i have as good as it sounds this integration um I, i've always had concerns about it uh, one of them being um the grassroots level just has got left behind the developmental side of it where the ontario amputee sports association they'd find us they would support us from right through the whole pathway and i, I it seems to me in, in a number of cases that these, you know, call them mainstream provincial sport organizations are kind of picking the, the, the riper fruit. <laughs> I said, I want to say the low hanging fruit, the riper fruit that these athletes are, are kind of ready to, to perform at, at, at that level. But what about the rest? And that's very much what Parasport Ontario is all about, that recruitment and cultivation and getting kids and adults on a pathway that could take them to the elite level or keep them in their neighborhoods and just keep them active. And when I talked about those two worlds that I lived in as a kid, I really benefited from that. And uh, today, in the, you know, the same story, I don't know if I would have made it or, or gone to the, to, to the Paralympics under today's system. I, I really don't because I would run at able-bodied meets and it was really intimidating. You know, I'm the guy, the only guy with a disability there, no, no arms, everybody else is, you know, of, of sound body and, you know, that sort of expected um, physique and, and, and look. And even in, in gyms when I was working now, it, um, it, it does take some real sort of courage and confidence sometimes for someone with a physical disability to be physically active among, you know, an, an able-bodied peer group. Um, and, and I'm wondering if that's a stumbling block or an obstacle um, to, to some, a hurdle to, to get over, uh, to really develop like I was able to. Again, those that are at that high level, that's where they got to go and this is how it's going to be. But that leading up to it, uh, it, it could be um, sometimes prohibitive. It would be prohibitive for some, for sure. Right. Now, of course, let's, you, but you competed for a long time as well, didn't you? Uh, from the 80s all the way to the 90s. All, Barcelona was in the 90s, is that correct? It was, in 92, yeah. I competed right. for as long as I could, and then these athletes <laughs> got, these younger athletes got really fast. <laughs> what happened? Um, I know. <laughs> which is great. So, yeah, my first games, I was 19, and um, they were in 84. Um, the Olympics were in L.A., the Paralympics, not even called Paralympics at the time, were in, uh, were in New York. And then it was 88, which was next in Seoul, where it was the first time that the Olympics and Paralympics 
now going by the name Paralympics, uh, were in the same same city and used the, the same venue. So that was kind of the dawning of the Paralympic era as we know it today. And then four years later in 92, I, I finished up as an old 27-year-old uh, <laughs> ready to retire. So can you tell us the three medals that you got? Because you got them on three different times. I did. Correct? Yeah, or three, I, and, and, and different events. So just sort of list bullet point for us those three medals. In those early days, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so the 84 games, you were encouraged to do multiple sports. I, at the 88, not, not, or 84, I should say, my first international games, which became by the name Paralympics four years later, I um, qualified in swimming. I was in three events in swimming. I, made the high, I qualified in high jump and I ran two track events. Like that's just absolutely unheard of today. So, you know, there's, there's a change swimming. I wasn't very good um, track. I hadn't quite hit my stride uh, pun intended, I guess, but high jump, I was loving. And um, I won a silver in the high jump there. And interestingly against the same guys that I ran against four years later in Seoul and won the gold in the 400. So then I had specialized in running hundreds, two hundreds and two and four was my, uh, kind of sweet spot 400 was was the one that i focused on and then uh in 92 in barcelona when i finished up uh i ran one event there and that was the 400 that was it so in those 12 years eight years i guess you'd say just the transition of specialization and competitiveness was it may have been the most dramatic in all of sort of the, the paralympic cycles i've heard of paralympians who go had they have one winter and one summer sport Right, but they won't have like one or 18 sports for that one summer game. It's like, and they talk about carding, which I don't understand still to this point, right? It's like, no, you can only get carded for one sport. It's like, so if I'm in horseback riding, I'm not going to be able to do athletics or if I'm not, if I'm sitting volleyball, I'm not going to be able to do wheelchair basketball. Not going to get paid to, to help you. It, yeah, uh, you right. can do it, but the money's going to come in one stream. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are a few, you know, good examples of, of, winter slash summer athletes, uh, Paralympic athletes. There are not a lot, that, that, that's for sure. Um, you know, there are different sports. So where wheelchair racing could translate to Nordic skiing, where you're, you're sitting and, and pushing yourself exclusively with the poles in a, in a sit ski. So you can kind of see how those two might, you know, there is some synergy there. But yeah, it, it's very rare. Um, they're an athlete, Tracy Ferguson, with I think seven Paralympic Games. It's it's amazing. Um, she did race on the track and be a member of the women's wheelchair basketball team in, in that same set of games. I mean, that was highly unusual too. So yeah, it has become very specialized. You play a big role in ensuring persons with disabilities uh, can get back to active lifestyles and for athletes to find their path to their sport through Parasport Ontario as an executive director. Can you tell us more about some of the highlights of the work that you do with Parasport Ontario and what Parasport Ontario can provide to para athletes? Parasport Ontario now seems like I start at the end of my answer and come back, but and that's what I'm doing again here, Aristotle. Sorry about that. But Parasport yeah. Ontario used to be um, that organization that uh, uh, took athletes with disabilities to provincial games. With that integration that we talked about uh, in the last segment, uh, that changed our role significantly because that's being done now by uh, Swim Ontario, Badminton Ontario, Athletics Ontario, uh, except for a couple of sports that don't fall into the, the, the typical realm, like goalball, goal a sport for athletes with disabilities, or wheelchair rugby, formerly known as murder ball, uh, which is a thrill to watch. So our, our role changed, and, and as I alluded to too uh, prior, that that, that, that developmental or that grassroots um, lens as it seems to have maybe clouded over a little bit that, that, that less attention is being uh, offered that way. So our new role, my job is um, really to, to harvest and, and, and cultivate and that's to go out and not just find kids, adults who aren't engaged in sport, but help them to find us to, and allow us to, 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 to help them. So it's not as easy as, okay, there's a sledge hockey uh, program in Port Colborne, uh, Ontario. Uh, someone just became a paraplegic, wants to try something, 
look it up on the internet and uh, click and I'm going to go. That doesn't quite work that way. Um, they need to feel that they're going to be welcomed. Am I going to be emotionally safe too, not just physically safe? Will I know anybody there? Am I, am I able to do this? And that's the role that, that we play in kind of supporting um, parents who want to get their kids into sport for the first time or after an injury or some sort of condition and adults the same. Um, and we were connectors. So do we have all the answers? No, but we have a advisory team that we call our thousand years of, of parasport advisory team where cumulatively the members have a thousand years of, of experience in parasport. So we're gonna connect folks with, with them. We've come to know programs and, and clubs well throughout Ontario and, and those that were confident they would be a good fit for, for someone, um, we, we connect them and we follow up and make sure that that, that relationship is building or that, that, that connection is there. So that's a lot of work. <laughs> it takes a lot of time, but the reward of it is, uh, is incredible when you see somebody, um, some of the stories that we had, at, uh, we have a lot of equipment that we can sort of loan out or bring to an event for people to try. And I think it was a Mississauga beer league, old, old, you know, a hockey team of older guys. One of their, and they've played together for years. Um, one of the sort of organizers from the beginning was in a car accident, uh, became a, a para. And what they wanted to do at least once a year was have one game where they all sat down in a sledge and, and played. So they rented uh, sledges for us. And he had a pretty severe, this might have been partial quadriplegic. So the, the sledge that we had for him wasn't quite right. They learned that the first year. So for the second year, when they wanted to do it again, brought all the sledges out. But this, this time we went back to the manufacturer and said, here's our situation. We need more stability. Um, what can you do for us? And we had a, a sled um, sort of modified to, to meet his needs and it worked beautifully uh, for him. So, you know, those kind of stories are um, just bulletin board stuff for us. Right. And so for those who are not quite familiar with Parasport Ontario, how does one get involved or how does a community or a school, what other programming are there that folks can get in with uh, Parasport Ontario? There are really good wheelchair basketball programs that, that exist through other organizations and, and same with Paris Ledge Hockey, like, like we're talking about. So with our Try, uh, try Me program, we'll go to community events with all that equipment and get people to, to give it a try and be that wheelchair basketball or sitting volleyball, paragolf, sledge hockey, bocce, whatever it may be. And if there's an interest, then that's when we connect them with, with some of these, these other organizations. So we've, uh, we have enough, we have like 20 some sledges with ice blades on them, 20 some sledges with rollers, as many wheelchairs. So we can come in and have many competitions in schools or corporate events or community events whatever it may be. So we've got a van that's uh, chock full of, of that stuff and, and ready to roll at, at, at any time. So that's a big part of what we do. Where are some of the sports aren't necessarily covered well? I don't say well, that might not be the right word. For example, Ontario Volleyball Association has come to us and said, could you help us develop a sitting volleyball program? So they have the infrastructure in place. We work together with them to introduce sitting volleyball and build teams and rehab centers. Blue Review in, in Toronto, for example, has created a team. First time uh, they ever had any kind of team. And, you know, we had uniforms donated. Uh, they competed at the Ontario Parasport Championships. And the pride on these kids that came, and adults too, that were part of the team, uh, first time wearing a, a uniform. Like never would they have had that in elementary school, in high school, feeling part of that team. So it's as much as getting them active, but giving them that experience as well for, for confidence and, and feeling good about, about themselves. So, yeah, that's a big part of what we do. And, and then the other sport that we really focus on in conjunction with Paragolf Ontario is Paragolf itself. And we're working closely with that organization, sort of hand in hand to build the, the profile of paragolf in Ontario and hopefully drive that to be a Paralympic sport someday, which it is not and we feel it should be. As I talked about some of these other organizations, that's where they're positioned to help that, that uh, where, the, where the pathway 
comes to the point of um, more high performance and, and, and competitiveness. And that's where we um, sort of hand off to, to these organizations. That, okay, you take it from there because that's where you specialize. But let us go out and build that base for you. And we look at sort of the, the Paralympic Parasport pyramid, where at the top are those high performance athletes. But where do they come from? I mean, you look at a pyramid, it's, you know, down each level to right down to that base. And, and that's where we, um, uh, it's where our strength is. And that's where our, our efforts are at that base and working up those levels to the point where we can confidently pass someone along, connect them with um, who can take them from there, if that's what they want to do. Now, you talked about getting equipment and loaning equipment. There's fundraising available for those equipment. Do you also fundraise or does Parasport Ontario help out with athletes as well, looking to get equipment or money for coaching and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. And again, a really good question. And I hadn't talked about that. Thanks for the opportunity to do that. Yes, we have an inventory of of equipment that goes out uh, into the community to attract and recruit new new participants. But there's also the the scenario where someone falls in love with para-ice hockey, sledge hockey, uh, or wants to be a track athlete but needs a racing wheelchair. Well, a racing wheelchair is 3,000 bucks. So sled is over 1,000. A wheelchair sport chair for basketball is five grand a hand cycle if they want to compete in cycling uh, or even just participate in you know the sport of cycling uh, there's eight nine grand so what we did is developed a um, sort of a fundraising platform called play to podium our play to podium fund and when we go out and do fundraising and, and generate corporate support it goes into this fund whereby then we can provide the equipment that is needed to to athletes that um um, want to take it the next level, but need that equipment. And there's always the caveat that, you know, there's the potential uh, that that maybe that sport wasn't just right for them. And here's this $5,000 wheelchair sport chair sitting in a garage or a basement. And we've seen it in the past when people have invested in it. And then that's, that's where it stays. So the deal is if this chair, this hand cycle, the sled is yours, as long as you use it and, and keep, keep using it. If, if you know, we're going to leave that sport um, behind, then could, could you give the chair back so someone else could, you know, benefit from it? So, and that, that's, we haven't had many back. <laughs> People are, when they want it, they want it. And they appreciate that um, this has been uh, gifted to them in, through Parasport, but by our, our corporate supporters for sure. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us more about those fundraising events? Like how often did they happen in a year? And so where do people find out about them? And, and uh, where can they find Paris Port Ontario to get more information on all of those events for fundraising? The Plato Podium Fund is always alive and, and well, and that can be found on our website. It's parasportontario.ca um, under do- donations. And um, uh, we have a signature event a number of events, but our signature event is our Para Pro Am golf tournament, uh, where we get significant corporate support of that event, and uh, it's it's a, it's a unique tournament in that it is competitive, being a, a Pro Am. So our teams are made up of five players each, uh, three corporate supporters, a Para golfer, that being a golfer with a disability, and a pro, and the winner goes on and plays in the RBC. Uh, regional or provincial scramble. Um, but yeah, there's uh, good prize money for the, for the pros. But um, as you would know, being there with us, Aristotle, for all of these years as our number one ambassador, and, uh, one of these days that we're going to let you play, but uh, you're just too good <laughs> working the sidelines. So, uh, so there's that. Um, and we will be launching some new fundraisers this this year to, to uh, very community-based. So if you know, we're raising money in Timmins, Ontario, that we want that money to support some equipment for someone in Timmins, Ontario, or, or Leamington or Windsor or across the province. So that's really the focus. It doesn't just go into a big pot, but it, it supports the, the communities where it was generated. Uh, that sounds really good. And talking about other things that's keeping you busy, you also run Thrive Magazine. Um, yeah, my professional working career started in the publishing business. And uh, so I've uh, had Disability Today Publishing Group, a name I gave it 25, 27 years ago, and, and named it that because we just really wanted to, to 
say who we were and, and not hide behind an, an acronym or a euphemism of, of disability. And, and it has panned out quite well for us. So been a number of different titles over the years. They've evolved, but we found when we started, we were, had a publication called Disability Today, and it was tried to be everything to everybody from politics to social issues to equipment to driving, whatever, prosthetics, equipment, and then across different disability groups as well. And it it held its own for a long time, but like the sport world, as we talked about, began to evolve and specialize, so did communications in, in the disability community, where my issues, your issues as an, as an amputee, um, although we fall into that umbrella of being people with disabilities like someone in a chair, or like someone who's visually impaired, our worlds and, and, and issues are, are, you know, very different. Challenges are very, very different. So there were some, there are some great publications for the limb loss community in the U.S., but they are U.S. focused. And we kind of pulled our friends, <laughs> amputee friends in Canada and said, you know, would you like something that's more Canadian specific? And they said, yeah. And that's what we did. So we went, uh, you know, amputees and, and the limb loss community specifically, that's the focus. And uh, in Canada, uh, Canadian content only. I mean, some research that's going on around the world, of course, that's pertinent to, to hear, but our profile folk, folks of which uh, your audience may or may not know that you are a cover, uh, I don't say cover boy, I don't mean that to be derogatory, but Grace, Aristotle Domingo graced the cover of uh, <laughs> Thrive go. Magazine uh, a few years ago. So it's uh, it's those kind of people that we like to have on the cover, uh, like yourself, Aristotle, who are great mentors, uh, you know, can really share and, and have an impact on, on the community with your, your story. Although you're behind the interview desk today, you've got a great story yourself. Thank you for, for, for letting me, for allowing me, I should say, to, to be on the covers. Uh, again, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And where can people find or subscribe to the magazine? It is in every prosthetic clinic in the country. Um, mm -hmm. We do send compliment, complimentary copies to, to everyone so someone can pick it up and take it home with them there. That's the idea. A lot of our uh, prosthetic clinics and facilities do actually purchase extra copies so they have, have more on hand. We're, we're really fortunate and appreciative of that. Um, but you can always see a lot of content at thrivemag.ca and you can subscribe there too. Um, yeah, we, we, we always welcome welcome new new story ideas as well. And um, but yeah, building that that community is uh, it's something that's given me a lot of a lot of reward. It's uh, pretty close to the heart being an amputee. Perfect, Jeff. Thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing some of the work that you do with the Lynn Boss community. I want to thank Jeff Easton and everybody for joining me today. I will share all the links on my website at www.airstyledomingo.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The Amputeo Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The Amputeo Show Podcast.